Our scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 through 30. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The word of the Lord. Um, Not long ago, I had dinner with an old friend of mine, a kid that I I grew up with. And um, 25 years earlier, this friend of mine had given up on Christianity and on Jesus Christ. He was now living how he wanted to, doing what he wanted. But he assured me over the course of this dinner that he and Jesus were still, they were still tight. They were still BFFs. He was still down with Jesus and all, just not with Christianity. And that's probably the same with the average American. If you went out there and asked them their view of Christianity, they'd rather not. Their view of Jesus, oh yeah, we're tight like that. I like him. He's cool. In fact, one study from a few years ago done by a political research group found that Jesus was one of the more popular people in America. He got a 90% approval rating, only behind Abraham Lincoln with a 91%, slightly ahead of Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback for the Packers, who was at 89 at that time. And most people have this view of Jesus as somebody who's cool that they're okay with because There's a view that Jesus accepted everyone, and that fits our cultural understanding of tolerance. And it's true, honestly. In many ways, Jesus challenged 
the cultural and religious norms of his day. He was somebody who relaxed religious rules and welcomed the sort of people that the religious would not welcome. And yet, at the same time, Jesus demanded far more morally and spiritually than even the most religious people in his day and age. In fact, he intensified most of the moral principles of the Old Testament. And we see that in our reading this morning. Jesus takes it far deeper and far wider than most religious people in his day ever understood the laws and rules to demand. The result is that according to Jesus and his life and what he was teaching, our view of tolerance falls far short. You see, it falls far short of the authentic and radical love that Jesus was actually talking about and demonstrating. So we're going to take a look this morning at two of the commandments from the Old Testament that Jesus talks about and see how he deepens them, how he widens them, and ultimately how he fulfills them. So first, how does Jesus deepen the commands? Well, he says, of course, and this is some of the most famous thing that Jesus ever said. He said, you've heard it said, but I say. And that you've heard it said, he says this several times in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. And the first two that we had read today are, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder. And this is the sixth and seventh commandment in that whole Ten Commandments list. And basically, Jesus is suggesting, uh, you've heard it said, and he's talking about all of the law, all of the commandments. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. And in that day and age, everyone had rules, and they understood, don't commit murder. And if we were going to say, you know, have you ever broken the sixth commandment? Have you ever committed murder? Hopefully, everyone in here um, would be able to say, you know, yeah, sure, I have not in cold blood stabbed somebody. I've not pulled a gun on somebody and shot them. I've not guillotined anybody recently. So I'm good. But of course, what does Jesus say? He takes it a step further. He's going a step deeper. He says in verse 22, You've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus says, it's not just if you can avoid stabbing somebody over the next 40 or 50 years, you're good. He says, oh, oh yeah, and also if, if you have anger issues... If you insult people, it's the same thing. And when Jesus is talking about anger, he's not talking about just anger. The idea that sometimes we get livid when wrongs appear and we want them righted. I can remember being at this very school decades ago, and I was uh, at the stadium watching the football game as a senior. And a few rows in front of me, I saw two larger freshmen who had clearly been drinking picking on a small, scrawny, nerdy freshman. And I was livid. I was angry. And I went and I got in these two boys' faces and I said, if you've got a problem with him, you've got a problem with me. And I I was ready to fight to protect this kid. That anger was an anger for somebody. It was on behalf of somebody. It was for a right and a good. Most of my anger, as may have been mentioned last week, is not getting what I want. 
It's selfish anger. It's my kids or my spouse or my neighbor or my employer won't listen to me. They won't do what I say. That's the anger Jesus is talking about. But also kind of embedded in that anger is bitterness and unforgiveness towards somebody. It's holding grudges and being offended and desiring revenge. You've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I say, if you have to get your way, if you're holding something against somebody else, you've already murdered them in your heart. He goes on to talk about if you've insulted somebody or called them a fool. And when you first read this on a first glance, it honestly sounds like second grade stuff. So, okay, we got it. No name calling. But most of us in the modern day, we don't go around calling people names. We get that. Now, in that day and age, I think that there was something to do with the honor and shame culture that Jesus was hitting at. You think about it. It's the first century. It's the Middle East. It's an honor and shame culture. And Jesus is talking about when you publicly shame somebody. In that culture, that was the the currency and value of the day. And so to publicly shame somebody is to steal from them their social, their emotional standing. It was to murder their character. And I think that we do the same sort of thing in how we treat and deal with people on many levels. It may not be literally insulting them and calling them a name, but a lot of us are really good at being cynical and sarcastic mocking or snarky. It's that critical spirit that's always looking down on at least some people. It's murder, Jesus says. Another way that we murder that fits this is, I don't know if you've ever gathered with two or three of your friends, and when you start talking instantly or at some point in the conversation, you start talking about somebody else who happens to not be there. And it's not just talking about her. It's, oh, do you know what she did? And then everyone else joins in. Uh, Oh, yeah. And and one time she, and do you know what else she does? Oh, I hate it when. Gossip is this kind of murder. The word that Jesus actually uses besides fool, and our translators put it as insult, is a word that most translators leave in the original Aramaic. It's a term called raka. And raka is one of these words that we're not really sure fully what it means, but behind it is the idea of empty or nothing. If you call your brother empty or nothing, now I don't know that we go around calling people airheads or empty people, but we certainly treat them as if they are nothing. And so what Jesus is saying, it's not just when you verbally assault somebody with anger or when you belittle them verbally or or try and besmirch their character. It's also when you simply ignore them and treat them as if they don't exist. A lack of active love and engagement is to annihilate them. It's to act as if they don't exist. It's also murder unforgiveness and bitterness and anger, excluding somebody from your inner circle, ignoring somebody, looking down on, disdaining, devaluing. 
all murder. Murder at its root is assuming the role of God in somebody else's life. And it's deeper than a knife, literally in the back. Jesus, of course, goes on to the next commandment. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say. And when Jesus is talking about adultery, it was understood in that day and age that that adultery was sex outside of the confines of marriage. And realistically, there there wasn't such a thing as a single person. Um, Everyone was either engaged to be married or married or a widow. It, It was a culture in which that was fundamental to the survival of society. And so when they said adultery, they were talking about all sex outside of the confines of a husband and a wife who are married together. And Of course, in our culture today, we have to ask, why is it that God always seems to be so excited about sex? Why does it seem like he's always talking about this sort of thing? And I'm going to take a stab at it this morning for just a minute, which is is not going to do a full justice to a biblical theology, a godly understanding of sexuality. But when we talk about adultery as wrong and sex within the confines of marriage, marriage, you have to understand, in the Bible, is not contractual. It's not a legal thing. It's covenantal. And a covenant was a commitment before God that was meant to last. A covenant, when we're talking about marriage, is an eternal commitment to your spouse before God. And this covenant was about giving and sacrificing and serving the other person, even if you got nothing in return. It's being known fully and knowing the other person fully. It's love as God defines it. And we see this played out a little bit in Genesis 2 in the Garden of Eden. What does this covenant look like, this covenant of marriage? It looks like God made them male and female in the image of God. So two people made in the image of God, which in a sense brought together are more complete a reflection of God. And it's why we need relationships with men and women, that a room filled with men and women is actually a fuller reflection of God. There's something in me that is different than something that is in you, and we need to be in a relationship together to more fully reflect God. And when men and women are brought together, we more fully reflect God. And that husband and wife relationship, that unique relationship, most fully reflects the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we also read in Genesis 2 that the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. They were naked physically, so that's sex, but also intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. That's God's intention with our lives in one another's. Sex outside of this covenant says that it's basically unbelief. It's saying, God, you have no say on my body. Sex outside of the covenantal description here is selfish. It's, I'm in this for me. 
or I'm in it until I don't get what I'm wanting and then I'll go somewhere else. It's also incomplete. It's saying, I'm willing to be naked with you physically, but not emotionally, not intellectually, not spiritually. I want your physical body, and I'm willing to give you mine, but I don't want all of you, and I don't want you to have all of me. Outside of the covenant of marriage, sex is dehumanizing. It denies the full image of God, and it desires, de- denies our relational design to love and give and serve another person. All this is why Jesus goes deeper than technical adultery. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say, if you look with lustful intent. Now you have to remember, Jesus was accused of all sorts of things when it came to women because Jesus got in trouble for relaxing religious and cultural rules on women. He related to them in a way that no rabbi would in that day and age. You see, rabbis, their primary goal was to avoid adultery. And so in order to avoid it, they would avoid women. Jesus' aim is not to avoid sin. It's to extend love, which is why he allows the prostitute to come in when he's at a dinner party and wash his feet. It's why when Jesus is at the well in Samaria... He does not do what any rabbi would do when the woman comes to the well. Any rabbi in that day and age would have taken 10 steps back and turned around until she was finished at the well. But Jesus instead engages her to know her emotionally and spiritually. When Jesus gives this prohibition against lust, he's moving from just the body to our mind, and therefore to our heart, saying we are made for true love, not just physical pleasure. Jesus calls sinful any objectifying of another person. And of course, pornography fits this perfectly. Think about pornography. In pornography, she exists for me, not I for her. So it's not covenantal love. There was a study that I've cited before. There was a study of men in college, and they they had these men in college see a lot of uh, images of women who were scantily clad in various forms of arousal, sexual arousal, And what was interesting in this study, the the psychologists who were doing this study found this, that in men who were looking at um, sexually suggestive images, the part of the brain that has to do with tools and action is turned on full speed. So I hammer, I screw, I turn, I saw. That part gets turned on. But when seeing suggestive images the part of the brain that is never turned off in human beings. Literally, it's never turned off. It's the part that has to do with empathy and knowing somebody and understanding them. That part never gets turned off in any human, except during that time when you're looking at something that is sexually arousing. And then for those moments, it's basically shut down. Jesus 
turns the other person into a hammer that I must use. And that's it. The covenant of marriage, as God intended, says, I want you forever. Adultery, as literally understood, says, I want you tonight or until I'm not getting what I want. Pornography says, I want you for a second, and then click, you're done. What Jesus is talking about is lust, which is sex without relationship, without knowing and being known. It's self-love and self-worship. Which is why the term that Jesus actually uses is, is actually rife with meaning. When he says lust, it's actually better to translate that as desire or desires. It's this word group, epithumia or epithumeo, which means covet or desire. And in Galatians and Ephesians, the same word is used to talk about the desires of the flesh. And in Romans 1, it's the desires of the heart. Throughout the New Testament, this word group is talking about idolatry. It's what I must have. It's what I worship. And so when Jesus says, if you look with lustful intent, if you desire something as an over-desire, what is it that you epithumia? What do you desire most? Control, power, approval, pleasure, money, sex, career, respect. And it's why, even though Jesus is talking about sexual desire, you could use it to apply to almost anything. Is your deepest desire to be romanced, to find the person, the spouse, the kids, a house that's just perfect. You can lust even without sexuality. Jesus, when he's talking about murder and adultery, is pushing it to the deeper issues of our thoughts, our motives, and our heart, and ultimately our heart's loyalty to God. And of course, he's also talking about wider issues. The rabbis of his day and age were content to avoid sin. But what does Jesus talk about here? He's not just talking about avoiding sin. He's talking about be reconciled to your brother or sister, loving others as we were intended to love them. He's talking about a wider issue of our role in one another's life. If you're an American you're a natural-born capitalist and consumer. The average kid is born a capitalist, an entrepreneur. An average kid who wants something, like there's, there's a product they want to buy, will come up with a way to make money. And so what they will do is they will assess their resources. Okay, we have some Oreos, uh, some powdered drink mix, a card table. I've got uh, a piece of paper. I'm going to make a sign. And pretty quickly, they're out on the corner with a lemonade stand. They've, they've marshaled their resources. They've got their marketing campaign. And by the end of the day, they have a few dollars. 
to get the stuff that they want. From an early age, Americans are great entrepreneurs and capitalists. We're also phenomenal professional consumers. Some of you are, are uh, Apple files, the, uh, the Mac products, the i products, right? And you know what it's like in 2010, the iPhone 4 came out. This was an amazing phone. It was uh, 3G. It had this thing called FaceTime where you could talk to other people. And then the next year, the iPhone 4S came out, and you had Siri, the beautiful voice of wisdom, to answer any questions you had. And then in 2012, the iPhone 5 came out. It was smaller and lighter and had more pixels and was 4G. And now the iPhone 5C has come out. It's got colored cases, and it's cheaper. And you know what it's like to desire that next thing, don't you? And you, you may be the kind of person who, is, who, who just throws off uh, smartphones and the next technological product, but I guarantee you are a consumer of something. There is something that is the next iPhone for you. Americans naturally evaluate things on economic terms. We say, is this a resource, an asset, a liability, an investment? Is this a sale? Is this a good product? Is this a good use of my time? Is this a billable hour? And even the deeper desires of our heart, when we're not literally talking about money, are evaluated on economic terms. Whether it's phones or houses or career or spouses or vacationing, we follow the, the measurements of Cold Stone Creamery. I like it, I love it, or I've got to have it with something. And the problem is, and I think Jesus is in a sense getting at this, is that we do the same with people. We deal with others as resources or liabilities, as commodities or potential customers and clients. Like an iPhone, we evaluate people. Will he make my life better? Like finding a good dentist or hairdresser, does she meet my needs? Like being a good investor, we think, he's a good resource. If I get to know him, I'll get into that group. Or we're simply saying, she's hot. I I must have it or she's not, and I'll just keep shopping. When Jesus talks about anger and insults and lust, he's talking about how we dehumanize people and suggest that they exist for me. I use them. I control them. I can yell at them. I measure them. I evaluate them, and I dispose of them when I want to. But Jesus is also saying in this passage that we are all made in the image of God that we are all eternally valuable. And I want you to hear that. This is behind what Jesus is saying. No matter what has happened to you in your life, no matter what other people have said about you, no matter what other people have done to you, you are made in the image of God. You are eternally valuable. God is the determiner of who you are and what you're worth. 
not anyone else. The sum of Jesus' message is this. We have a problem. And sin is not just breaking all the rules. It's a heart that's turned against God and is turned inward to serve myself. And so it affects my thoughts and my motives. And the goal is not just avoiding sin, trying to avoid stabbing people or waking up with somebody you're not married to. The goal is selfless, sacrificial, covenantal love towards all people, which means God wants our hearts and our desires. And this is why we're all in trouble. We all fall short. Jesus said in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the most religious people you could possibly know, And what Jesus is saying, it's not just external perfection. It's the kind of internal transformation that you cannot achieve on your own. Unless you get there, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And as a result of that, no one measures up. There is good news in this passage. Somewhere in there. In verse 17, Jesus said, I have not come to abolish, get rid of, discard the law. I have come to fulfill it. If you think about any law, like running a stop sign or speeding, there's two ways to fulfill a law. You either keep the rules or you pay the penalty for breaking the rules. I have never sped. Two years ago, a cop got me. I'm pretty sure it was, it was a trick. They must have flipped the sign. I'm sure it said 40 earlier, but it was 25. Um, and the reality is, if I keep the speed limit, I've fulfilled the law. But if I break it like I did, then I have to pay the penalty, and I paid a fine. But once I paid the fine, that law, that officer no longer had a claim on me. You can fulfill the law of God by keeping it perfectly or by paying the penalty. All of us have sinned and fall short, the Bible says. All of us deserve to pay the penalty. But Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law. And he fulfilled it both ways. He kept the law perfectly, and he paid the penalty. In his life, he was perfectly obedient, and in his death, he paid the penalty that we deserve. Jesus gives his life for ours. When we murder somebody or commit adultery against them, it's their life for me. Jesus has given his life for us. He brings the prohibition against adultery and murder to its full end, saying, I give myself for you. The root of sin is a heart and desires issue. Ultimately, we live to serve ourselves. Our desires are fixed on anything but God, so we use other people rather than loving them. The seed of change is not in trying harder or creating better rules or avoiding people altogether. The seed of change is in the gospel. 
you will always fall short. You are not good enough on your own. You deserve to pay a penalty. But you are also deeply loved and eternally valuable in Jesus Christ. Become BFFs with the real Jesus. Let him become the epithumia, the deepest desire and lust of your heart. And this kingdom life will begin to be the desire of your heart too. Let's pray. God, we need your grace because we fall short. We live for ourselves and not for you. Transform us by your grace to know that we are loved in spite of all this so that we might love as you've made us and called us to do. Let's continue in prayer.